Chapter 5, Part 3 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. To the Far West. Part three. At the small station of Salida, three engines were waiting for us, and the train was broken into two, the baggage cars and one engine preceding us. We watched with the greatest interest for the beginning of the ascent of fourteen miles up the Marshall Pass, for the crossing of the Rockies, the Great Divide as they are called, separating as they do the Atlantic and Pacific continents. There was a grade of 217 feet to the mile, and the engine puffed and panted, emitting alternately their black columns of smoke, taking it in turns to pull us up the steep inclines. So steep they were that everything in the cars slipped downwards, and the conductor passing through appeared to be walking uphill. Looking upwards, the dark line of earth winding round the mountain showed us our onward track and we looked almost incredulous of ever reaching there till sweeping round another curve the length of the train often doubling itself we were brought on a level with it but the most dangerous thing appeared to us the crossing of the wide gullies and passing from one mountain to another the train describing one of its deep curves on a frail wooden trestle bridge before continuing in the upward track we were climbing higher and higher already above a lower range of mountains and soon touching the snow line one minute we were in the dark tunnel of the numerous snowsheds and the next in full view of what is perhaps the most glorious the most awe-inspiring scene in its gaunt loneliness and majesty that we shall ever see in all our lives a sea of peaks around and before and behind as far as the eye can reach the cold grey of the wan gloom tinged with a rosy light lingering yet long after the sun had gone down a scene of the greatest desolation for fire had swept the pine forest not long ago destroying all vegetation and the blackened and charred stumps marked but too surely its devastating path we shivered involuntarily as we stopped for a short time at the very summit partly from the chilly dampness of the atmosphere, but as much from a feeling of sheer loneliness and dread. We should have liked to have been alone in the car, left to ourselves for a few minutes to realize that majestic scene and imprint it indelibly on the memory. The engine shrieked and we were carried away into gloom, losing all the beauty of the descent in the gathering darkness to supper at a wayside shanty by the uncertain light of guttering oil lamps. It seemed wonderful, as we lay down in our berths in the car that night, to think that we had gone up the Rockies and come down on the other side in an ordinary passenger train. Very different it must have been in the old coaching days, when they toiled along the road which we had traced in a dim white line in the far distance. It was most annoying going through the black canyon of the Gunnison at night, 
but i was fortunate enough to wake up at midnight just as we were passing through it and looking out i could see the ghostly shadows cast by the headlight of the engine in the deep chasm and could trace the outline of its chief beauty the straight and slender needle-point of the curaconte wednesday august twentieth at grand junction station we awoke at seven in the morning to find the car at a standstill and also to hear that it had been so since three a m there had been a washout at green river some one hundred fifty miles up the line we soon found out what this expressive turn signifies it means an indefinite waiting for an indefinite number of hours indefinite i say because it entirely depends on the subsidence of the freshet and the reparation of a bridge we learnt afterwards that the denver and rio grande line is particularly subject to these little mishaps and we noticed that the officials thought nothing at all of the occurrence the same thing had happened to some ladies now in the train when going over the line two months previously adding insult to injury we were turned out of our pullman where we might have spent the day comfortably enough and the train returned eastwards leaving the passengers and their luggage a forlorn group on the platform of the grand junction we found breakfast at a wooden shanty near the station and fared better than those who tried the hotel the scene that lay before us was this on one side there was a collection of wooden huts forming the village with the grandiloquent name of grand junction bought two years ago from the indians by the government it stands in a sandy desert with a plentiful sprinkling of alkali bounded by a low chain of granite rocks on the other was a marshy ground leading to the river c bought some tackle in the village with a wild idea of fishing but we found the hot sun on the swampy banks was so unhealthy that we beat a hasty retreat in writing up my journal and reading the morning passed and we again repaired to the shanty for luncheon in the course of the afternoon we strolled into the town and laid in a store of biscuits against further accidents and ran back to the shelter of the station before a coming storm the heavens opened and a waterspout came down in the distance like a pillar of cloud seeming to draw the earth up to it and gusts of wind blew up the dust into clouds sweeping over the little village like a real simoon of the desert there was no one in authority to give us any information and the most intelligent individual about the station seemed to be the telegraph clerk who had only arrived the previous day from chicago he had just made out from a telegram as he thought that we were to wait till seven o'clock for a train when we saw one coming into sight i don't think anyone inquired where it was going or whether it was the right one but we all jumped in and sped joyfully across the dreary plain we saw a beautiful double rainbow the most vivid and perfect arcs i have ever seen just meeting each other where they touched the earth we had not been expected at green river and there was not much supper forthcoming but we did not care as we had in fear and trembling previously passed in safety over the bridge the conductor putting his head between the curtains at seven the next morning with the announcement of breakfast in ten minutes awoke us 
and we looked out upon the beautiful valley of utah girdled with the mountains and abounding in rich farms and orchards watered by several pure streams of water nature seems to have smiled upon this sunny spot and here the mormons wanderers on the face of the earth for so long chose a resting place and built their city by the salt lake the great range of the wasatch mountains opens out here and forms a convenient site for a city at their feet and as we approached we saw that distinctive feature the dome of the tabernacle the streets of salt lake city are wide too wide for the traffic for on either side they are overgrown thickly with weeds forming in some streets into grass borders the houses are low and pretty covered with creepers and the gardens luxuriate with bright flowers that thrive naturally in these sheltered spots swiftly running water in the gutters answers the double purpose of irrigation and drainage we naturally first wended our way to the tabernacle it is of the dreariest of whitewashed buildings inside the rounded dome of the roof is unsupported by any pillars and faded evergreen wreaths and tawdry flags are suspended from the centre erected for commemoration day some fifteen years ago and never since taken down the organ ranks is the third largest in the states and the little wooden boxes ranged in tiers on the platform in a gradually descending scale sit the president the elders and the bishops from here they call upon brother so-and-so to address the congregation there is a most wonderful echo in the tabernacle we distinctly heard a pin dropped at the further end to where we were standing the marble temple which is being built to replace the old place of worship has already cost seven hundred fifty thousand pounds but judging from the few workmen in the sheds we thought the funds had perhaps come to an end we went next to zion's cooperative store it is a fine stone building with the text holiness to the lord blazoned on a sign over the door and inside you might fancy yourself in the army and navy cooperative stores the same division of departments including the lift to each floor an elder showed us through and all those employed in the buildings are mormons true believers are exhorted to deal solely at the store there is a theatre and the walker opera house for they maintain and quite rightly that as all people have a fondness for dramatic representations it is well to so regulate and govern such exhibitions that they may be instructive and purifying in their tendencies if the best people absent themselves the worst will dictate the character of the exercises behind a high stone wall are the two houses that belong to brigham young called the bee and the lion houses from the carved designs over the doors in the latter brigham young died exactly opposite is the large stone house the finest in the territory utah is not a state but a territory which he built for his last and seventeenth wife and which is now occupied by his successor president taylor asking to be shown brigham young's grave we were taken to a plot of grass roughly walled in and in the centre was the grave of loosely piled stones marked with a wooden cross he was buried here and not in the cemetery as a distinguishing mark of respect but if so his resting-place might we thought have been better cared for 
many of the mormon residences may be recognized by their green gates and several entrances for the separate use of the different wives and families at present the population of salt lake city is fourteen thousand of which about ten thousand are mormons but the mines in the wasatch range are bringing a great influx of gentiles the government have made many ineffectual attempts to convict the mormons of polygamy but the prosecutions always languish for want of evidence as they are faithful to the tenets of their religion not even the unhappy wives superseded and often tormented by the last favorite can be brought to give evidence many are followers of the religion of the latter-day saints without necessarily becoming polygamists we invested in some mormon literature a pamphlet on the bible and polygamy a discussion between elder orson pratt one of the twelve apostles of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints and the rev dr newman chaplain of the united states senate in which it must be confessed the former seemed to have rather the best of the argument also a mormon bible which is divided into the four books of nephi and ten others the bible seems to have been taken as the foundation for many chapters and worked into the tenets of the mormon faith forms a curious medley in the catechism which we also got we found that the question and answer was generally authenticated by a text quoted from the scriptures and the mormon bible and placed side by side this catechism consists of eighteen chapters and seems more to be a full exposition of faith than for the instruction of children i give a few extracts from the last chapter which i think may be interesting one question has god given any particular revelation in these last days for the preservation of their lives and health to his people answer yes he gave a revelation to joseph smith on this subject two question what is this revelation called answer a word of wisdom seven question what does the first paragraph or verse of this word of wisdom teach us answer that it is not good to drink wine or strong drinks excepting in the sacrament of the lord's supper and then it should be home-made grape wine that it is not good to drink hot drinks or chew or smoke tobacco that strong drinks are for the washing of the body and that tobacco is an herb for bruises and sick cattle eight question what does the second paragraph teach us answer that herbs and fruits are for the food of man the grain is for the food of man and beasts and fowls and the flesh is not to be eaten by man excepting in times of winter cold and famine eleven question why is it not good to drink wine or strong drinks answer because they excite men unnaturally inflame their stomachs vitiate their appetites and disorder their whole systems thirteen question why is it not good to smoke or chew tobacco answer because those habits are very filthy and tobacco is of a poisonous nature and the use of it debases men fourteen question why should flesh be eaten by man in winter and in times of famine and not at other times answer flesh is heating to the human system therefore it is not good to eat flesh in summer but god allows his people to eat it in winter and in times of famine because all animals suffer death naturally if they do not by the hand of man we left salt lake city in the afternoon and skirted along the shores in the train of the great salt lake 
the Dead Sea of America. Two feet of pure salt lie encrusted round its shores. The water contains 20% of it, and the evaporation of four barrels of water leaves one of salt. The atmosphere is always bluish and hazy from the effects of this active evaporation. No fish or fowl can live in the lake, and it is impossible to drown, so great is the buoyancy of the water, though death can easily be caused by strangulation. We arrived at Ogden at three o'clock, the junction where a connection with the Central Pacific Railway is made, and here there ensued a very weary waiting of four hours for another Denver and Rio Grande train. When it did arrive, we made up a train of twelve cars, with the arrears of passengers and baggage from the late washout. In the year 1844, when Fremont made his first exploration across the vast prairies, there was not a single line of railway west of the Alleghenies. The discovery of gold in California drew attention to the enormous wealth lying to the far west, and Congress made a grant for an exploration, which resulted in the commencement of the Central Pacific Line, this great junction between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. On the 10th of May, 1869, the lines from the east and west met in the middle of the prairie, and the last tie, a silver one, was laid in commemoration of the event. All through that night we were passing through the great American desert of 600 square miles, once the bed of a vast sailing lake. The next morning there was still nothing to be seen but mud-dried plains with here and there a little sagebrush, the ground being cracked and parched under the burning sun. In some parts there were fields of white alkali, making the lips salt and the eyes smart painfully. I verily believe nothing could surpass the terrific, fiery heat of that day in the cars. We could not read or talk, but sat with parched lips, panting, the sand floating into the car in a white cloud that soon made us and all around invisible. One poor old woman in the next car nearly died. They fanned her all day whilst she wailed piteously for one breath of air. At some of the stations we passed there were groups of Paiute Indians, clothed in striped blankets with bead necklaces, and one mother brought her papoose, baby, slung on her back in a long basket that had the characteristic features of the race, the pear-shaped eyes and the drawn-down corners of the mouth, ridiculously strongly marked in its wee brown face. The mother begged for two bits for the wee papoose. We had luncheon in the middle of the day at Humboldt, a few green trees about the station forming a very oasis in the desert. The exertion of getting out made us, if possible, a little hotter. We thought then of the awful sufferings endured by the early immigrants as they toiled day after day over these alkali plains. Along earlier stages of the line, the old immigrant trail can frequently be seen, with here and there a rude wooden cross marking the lonely grave of some immigrant or freighter who, overcome by sickness and weariness, lay down and died. We lived through the long hours of that day as best we could, and about seven o'clock we thought it was perhaps just a little cooler, and the glare of the sun not quite so angry. We tried to ventilate the cars by opening all the windows and standing outside on the platforms before turning in for the night. 
it was wonderful how mutual sufferings had brought the passengers together and how friendly we had all become one charming american lady the wife of a clergyman brought us each a most refreshing cup of real english tea after such a trying day it was particularly aggravating to be entering the magnificent scenery of the sierra nevadas and to be crossing them during the night we were in the beautiful valley of the sacramento the next morning among its cornfields vineyards and orchards already catching glimpses of the blue waters of the bay of san francisco running far inland we crossed the carthagena straits on one of those wonderful steam ferries that are capable of carrying four loaded trains the train was slowed run on and before he knew anything had happened we were halfway across and able to get down from the car and going to the side of the ferry look down into the muddy waters the platforms at either end are hydraulically raised or lowered according to the state of the tide to the level of the ferry for many miles we continued skirting the bay partly crossing it on trestle bridges till we reached oakland so called from its beautiful groves of oaks and which though separated from san francisco by the bay is one of its suburbs we crossed over from oakland ferry and were at san francisco our journey to the far west across the continent of america four thousand miles from ocean to ocean traversing the ten states of pennsylvania ohio indiana illinois iowa nebraska colorado the territory of utah nevada into california safely accomplished End of chapter 5, part 3